The Operation Christmas Child Shoeboxes is such a great practical way to share the love of Jesus. And uh, we've been so thankful as a church to be able to partner uh, with Samaritan's uh, Purse and, uh, and Dale Armstrong, who's headed that up for Clarney every single year. And thanks to Jackie Enns and uh, the Sunday School for heading that up through a Sunday School project. And I think this was maybe one of our best years ever as far as the total number. And I know that in addition to the 67 that were done by the Sunday School Department, there are others that were done privately by people in the congregation. So I'm not even sure what the total number is, but I think we're pushing uh, close to the 100 shoebox mark. So well done. And uh, it really is such a neat thing to know that each shoebox represents a life that's going to be touched directly one-to-one. And that's one of the neatest things about, about that program. So uh, thank you so much for investing in such a, uh, such a neat and worthwhile way of sharing the love of Jesus with kids in other parts of the world. This morning, I also just want to draw your attention to the, the beautiful uh, wall banner that's hanging here of the poppies. Uh, I want to thank Adeline Nickel, who has uh, uh, given that for our use here for this service today. So thank you, Adeline, for that. And uh, it's a beautiful reminder to us again of what we've been speaking about this morning, remembering those who have sacrificed uh, on behalf of our nation. And so this morning, as we, uh, as we enter this word, as we put a bit of a spotlight on what has happened um, in the history of our nation, and as that parallels to what the Lord Jesus has done for us, again and again we hear this reminder, lest we forget, lest we forget. Um, as I was just saying with the kids, we are forgetful people. We so easily forget and need reminders um, of <laughs> almost everything, but especially the most important things. And God knows that. And that's why again and again throughout Scripture, we see him saying, put this up as a remembrance, as a reminder, so that we do not forget, so that the future generations will not forget what happened here, what God did here. And so today we want to, again, remember what God has done, to be thankful and to respond with our lives. So would you bow with me and let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are such a merciful, such a patient and gracious God. Lord, you know that so often we are are a forgetful people. So often we are a rebellious people. And yet in your great love for us, you again and again call us back to yourself. You again and again so gently give us reminders to be reminded of what you've done and to be thankful and to respond to you, Lord. Often we need to repent of sin and to turn back to you. And so, Father, this morning as we enter your word, as we are reminded of what has happened in our nation's history, I pray, Lord, that in and through this, we would look to you, the God of all hope, the God of all peace, the one who will make all things right, and that you use us to that end. And so bless your word, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, for those of you who don't know, I'm a bit of a history buff. I quite enjoy world history and especially war history as it pertains to Canada. And so this morning, I'm going to give you a bit of a history lesson as we begin. We can pull up the first slide this morning. And this is a picture of something that I was privileged to be able to see firsthand myself on a missions trip that we took to France with BLF, Bibles and Literature in French. And uh, there was a number of us from our church who were able to go, and one of the things that we were able to do when we were there was visit the memorial at Vimy Ridge. 
Now, it was in the dark hours of Easter Sunday night of April 8th, 1917. The single greatest battle in Canadian military history was just about to begin there on the slopes of Vimy Ridge, France. Now, Vimy Ridge was a strategic seven-kilometer-long vantage point from which the heavily entrenched and fortified German army was able to hold the high ground and dominate the battlefield in every direction. On previous occasions, both the French and British armies had made concerted efforts to dislodge the Germans and to take this ridge. But all previous attacks had been repelled and failed at a horrific cost in lives. It was said that the Canadians would be assaulting over an open graveyard, since previous French attacks had failed with over 100,000 casualties. And yet the order was given for the Canadian Corps to attack and to take this ridge where so many had tried and failed before. And so, for the first time in the war, all four divisions of the Canadian Army, made up of 100,000 Canadian soldiers from all across the nation, coast to coast, were combined for the first time. Each soldier had been drilled and prepared relentlessly for months, all for this one climactic battle, a battle whose outcome would either prolong or hasten the end of the most horrific war in human history a battle that would determine the fate of nations, a battle that would come to define the nation of Canada. And so much hung in the balance, not the least of which was the combatants' own lives. But in the tense hours of waiting in the dead of night, nothing was yet certain. The outcome of the grim struggle was yet to be determined. And regardless of victory or defeat, every soldier knew that there was the distinct possibility that he would not live to see another sunset. Now, for me, I've heard and read about Vimy Ridge and the battle since I was a little kid. And like I said, I've been fascinated with these things my whole life. And so in my mind's eye and reading the stories and looking at the pictures, I always had an idea of how the battle looked. But then having had the opportunity to visit Vimy Ridge in person, it completely changed my perspective on what I'd previously thought. Because you see, while I had thought of the battle as being principally fought above ground, which of course the the final finish was... I learned that the prelude, the build-up to the battle, was principally fought deep below ground in tunnels. And you'll see in this next picture, one of those main tunnels, deep underground in Vimy. In fact, when we went there and did the tour, most of the tour was underground than, than above ground. We went down into these tunnels. The most important work leading up to the battle was the secret construction of these 11 tunnels or subways totaling over 6 kilometers in length. And they were designed to bring in the first wave of assaulting troops safely to be at the front of the German lines without having to cross through no man's land under fire and and be able to make it to the foot of the ridge unscathed. And so each subway was equipped with electric lights, water supplies, first aid stations, and dugout chambers for the officers and staff. Moreover, in this next slide, you'll see that they had even smaller tunnels, If you felt a little claustrophobic in the first tunnel, well, these ones definitely start getting claustrophobic. These were called fighting tunnels. And these fighting tunnels, they would dig underneath the enemy lines in order to lay explosive charges beneath the German trenches, which would then be detonated just before the attack. And and in fact, the Germans would be tunneling back and they'd be listening for each other to see how close they were to each other and they may actually try to, to explode the enemy's trench or tunnel before they could get to their lines. And so there was this underground warfare happening 
in the prelude to the battle. You can't imagine the sort of fear and claustrophobia that would be involved in these sort of situations. Now, while we were down in the tunnels, with modern lighting and, of course, everything being well-lit and taken care of, and I think there were cement walkways poured through much of it that wouldn't have been there in the original days that the soldiers were there, even then, I still felt somewhat claustrophobic going down there, because in some cases, we went down 20 and 30 meters underground. This wasn't just a surface tunnel. This was deep underground. But then, when I was down there, and at one point, we went in an area where the lights were turned off, and it was just... It was just dark. And the guide told us to try to imagine what it would have been like to be there on that fateful night with tens of thousands of soldiers packed in shoulder to shoulder in this gloom. And our guide also pointed out in that scenario, trying to picture this, that at that time there were no latrines. So bodily waste was simply discarded underfoot. So imagine the smell. In addition, it was constantly wet and muddy, and there were aggressive rats that were a real and constant companion and threat. But as miserable as the tunnels were, the looming specter of what was waiting for them out there, when they went up over the top and into the teeth of the German defenses, was more grim still. Carvings of their time underground remain there on the walls to this day. In this next picture, you'll see one of those carvings that a Canadian soldier, while they were waiting underground, carved in the walls. Many of them did their unit insignias. One of those young soldiers was a 17-year-old, and yes, most of the soldiers were between the ages of 16 and 20. They were just kids. 17-year-old Private Elmer McKenzie, along with his 19-year-old brother Doug from Toronto, Elmer kept a diary throughout the war, and on that fateful day of April 9th, there is a single entry that reads simply, Canadians take Vimy Ridge. Doug gets wounded. Spent night in battalion headquarters. Old German dugout on Ridge. Very stormy weather and muddy. That was his synopsis of the day. And yet those few words belie his own heroic efforts that day, for which he was later awarded the Military Medal for Bravery by the Canadian Army. It was later said of him simply, he saved lives that day. He and his brother Doug's courage was multiplied thousands of times over. As in the pre-dawn darkness of the 9th of April, Easter Monday, over 15,000 Canadians in the first wave of the assault gathered at their assembly points in the underground subways or in selected shell holes or in trenches above ground. And at 4 a.m. the air was cold and the mud had hardened overnight. Wind-driven snow and sleet swept across the ridge. We can well picture that, making conditions miserable, but it helped to obscure the Canadians from the enemy. At 5.30 a.m., the Allied artillery guns opened up once again, and the Canadians began their assault, keeping as close as safely possible behind the roaring artillery barrage as it swept over the German front trenches. Steady fire from 150 machine guns raked the battlefield ahead of them, giving further protection as they advanced. Hand-to-hand fighting ensued as the Canadians leapt into the German trenches. There were numerous examples of personal initiative and heroism. Private William Milne, 24 years old, a Scottish farmhand from Saskatchewan. He was pinned down and watching his fellow soldiers be cut down by a German machine gun nest. Undeterred, he single-handedly crawled forward under the withering fire, and he silenced the machine gun nest with a grenade. Private Milne saved many of his squad's lives that day but he himself would die later the same day. He was posthumously awarded the Victoria Cross, the British Empire's highest award 
for military valor and self-sacrifice going to a farmhand from Saskatchewan. And so here at the Vimy Memorial, we see the picture that by sunset that night, where that memorial stands today, the Canadians were in firm control of the ridge. They had achieved in a single day what most thought to be impossible. It was the fastest and most stunning victory of World War I, with all of the main objectives being taken on that single day of Easter Monday, April 9, 1917. And the very next day, April 10th, King George of Great Britain sent the following message to Field Marshal Sir Douglas Haig, commander of the British armies on the front line. He said, quote, The whole empire will rejoice at the news of yesterday's successful operation. Canada may well be proud that the taking of the coveted Vimy Ridge has fallen to her lot of troops. I heartily congratulate you and all who have taken part in this splendid achievement. Yet that splendid achievement came at an extremely high cost. For in the aftermath of the battle, the unspeakable horror of war was everywhere. The dead, dismembered, and wounded were sprawled everywhere in the slime. All told, 3,000 598 Canadian soldiers died in the battle that day. Another 7,000 wounded, many severely. It remains the single most costly day of lives lost in Canadian military history. Even the the catastrophic raid on Dieppe in World War II did not surpass the death toll of this day. And so it is extremely sobering as I stood upon Vimy Ridge and there at that memorial to read the names of those young men upon that memorial to see their ages, 16, 17, 18 years old, and then to walk past the countless rows of unidentified dead upon whose gravestones is inscribed the single phrase, known unto God. In this next picture, you'll see one of those tombstones. And this is just one representative of countless others whose remains were never identified. And so it simply says, known unto God. And so today, as we are here on Remembrance Day, we again and again read and hear the admonition, lest we forget, lest we forget their lives, lest we forget their sacrifice, lest we forget their courage, lest we forget the horror and the folly of war and so repeat its mistakes. And so every year on November 11th, we as a nation, we pause and we remember. And we do so not to glorify war. We do so to pay respect to the fallen. And ultimately, we do so in the hope of the coming day, which was long ago prophesied in in Micah chapter 4, verse 3. The day when the Lord will judge between many peoples and will settle disputes for strong nations far and wide. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. That is the day we long for, and we pray for that day. But now, some years after having been underground in Vimy, some years later, I was underground once more in a very different part of the world, in the nation of Israel. And there, in that underground place, not near so deep, is this place. And this picture will remind you of what I'm speaking of. It's the garden tomb. And this garden tomb is in Jerusalem, quite possibly the very place where Jesus was buried. 
And as I was there underground, I was reminded of another far greater battle that took place on an Easter long ago, the first Easter. It was a battle that not only determined the fate of nations, but it was a battle that would determine whether or not salvation would be won for the entire world, whether it would be won for you and me. And the parallels between the two battles as they came to me are striking and many. For just as the Canadians faced impossible odds against a firmly entrenched and determined enemy, the Lord Jesus faced alone all the demonic forces of Satan, sin, and death. And remember that up until that point, they had a combined undefeated record of destroying all who dared come against them. And Jesus faced them all with a single goal of destroying the power of sin and death over us once and for all. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Therefore, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil. And then just as the Canadians had meticulously planned, prepared, and trained for months in advance, the Lord's full plan of salvation was agreed upon from before the foundations of the world and then enacted through the long ages of world history. In 1 Peter 1 verse 20, it says of Jesus, He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Then, just as the Canadians would fight and shed their blood going up that ridge, Jesus fought his way up a hill called Golgotha. And fighting his way up that hill was not an easy fight, for he dragged his cross with him, and his own blood marking the grim passage. 1 Peter 1, verses 19 and 20. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. The precious blood of Christ. That is what achieved our victory. And then just as so many Canadians willingly gave their lives upon that hill to save their friends, the Lord Jesus willingly, freely gave his life upon Calvary's hill, nailed to a criminal's cross to save not only the world, but you and me. John fifteen thirteen, Jesus said, Greater love has no one than this than to lay down his life for his friends. And then John 10, verse 11, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Mark 10, 45, Jesus said, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, Jesus gave his life. No one took it from him. He laid it down of his own accord. He did it for us, his sheep, his friends, his precious blood being the price. And then just as the Canadians spent much of that battle underground, so too the Lord Jesus' body was buried in the tomb. His spirit descended into Hades, where he took back the keys of sin and death. And in Revelation 1 verse 18, Jesus says in his revelation to John, I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Jesus went into the ground, 
But he did not stay there. He came back victorious. And then finally, just as at such a high cost, the Canadians won a tremendous victory that was later called the victory that gave birth to a nation. So too, at the indescribably high cost of Jesus' life, he won a victory so stunning that it gave birth to eternal life for everyone who believes in him and into an eternal kingdom that will never end. One in which only righteousness, truth, justice, peace, and love will reign forever and ever without end. And Colossians 1 verses 3 and 4 tells us, For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And so today, just as we as a nation rightfully pause and to remember those who sacrificed their lives for our nation, how much more, how much more deeply as we approach the communion table shouldn't we pause with incredibly grateful hearts and remember Jesus. Remember the one who so willingly sacrificed himself for the salvation of our eternal, immortal souls. You know, a friend once asked me, if salvation is a pure gift that we can't earn, we can't do anything to achieve, then why should we live Jesus' way? What should motivate us to live a Christian life after having received salvation that we didn't have to earn? Why? And my response after some thought was this. Sheer gratitude. If nothing else, sheer gratitude. Because he saved my soul. This wasn't some small thing. He didn't just do me a favor. He saved my eternal, immortal soul. And so why Why after that would I ever want to do anything but live my life Jesus' way? Let me ask you today, how about you? Are you living your life Jesus' way? Or are you treating his sacrifice for you as something cheap? Something taken for granted, something you're not remembering in your day-to-day life so that you can just go on and live life your way, not his? If so... This morning, I want you to come back to the cross and to look at Jesus and remember what it cost him to save your soul. It wasn't cheap, my friends, and it wasn't easy. It cost him everything. And so the response for us to live our life Jesus' way, sheer gratitude, sheer love for what he has done for us, how can we do anything less? And so Jesus, knowing that we would need to be reminded again and again and again of what he did for us, lest we forget, at the Last Supper, Jesus ordained this simple act for us to observe and to remember. 1 Corinthians 11, 23-26, the Apostle Paul wrote, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. 
For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so, my friends, what a privilege this morning. What a privilege to be invited by Jesus himself to share vicariously in his suffering, to remember his sacrifice, and in doing so, this morning, we are proclaiming the mighty power of his death and victory upon the cross and over the grave until he returns. And when he returns, that final battle will be waged and Satan and death itself will be thrown into the lake of fire forever. And more than that, on that day, we will be caught up with Jesus in the air and so be forever with the Lord. That is the day that we are proclaiming this morning as we gather around this communion table. What a privilege, what an honor that in our simple actions here today, Invited by Jesus himself, we are participating not only in God's plan of salvation for us, but for the whole world from the beginning of time until the end of time. And so, lest we forget, this morning I extend Jesus' invitation to you to come, to eat with him, take the bread, drink the cup, and remember Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are so grateful to you for what you have done for us. My words fail to express. Our words fall short of what we feel when we think of you and what you have done for us. And so, Father, I pray that by the Holy Spirit's inner work within us, Would that gratitude rise up within us, Lord, that we would desire nothing less than to live our lives fully and completely for you, holding nothing back. And that, Lord, where we have taken you for granted, where we have treated your sacrifice as though it were something cheap, Lord, forgive us. And this morning we confess our sins to you and we ask, Lord, grant us the the motivation, the determination, and the strength to forsake lives that are lived for ourselves, that are lived dabbling in sin, and instead, Lord, that we would fully commit ourselves to living our lives nothing less than your way and for you in everything that we, that we do and say and think. And so, Father, grant us that grace this morning. Thank you that we could come before you, not because of what we've done, but because of what you've already won for us. And for this, we give you all honor, glory, and praise. Amen.